Welcome to our introductory podcast, our inaugural podcast of the uh, cross-Atlantic collaboration between Phil Hill and Associates and Neil Mosley Consulting. And in the room today, we have Phil Hill, the eponymous Phil Hill, and the eponymous Neil Mosley, and me, Glenda Morgan, and I go by Morgan. But perhaps we can start by first doing a uh, a little intro. So perhaps Phil and, and Neil, in that order, can give a a really two-minute thing about who you are and, and where you are. Sure. And I hadn't thought about the fact that you're the one that doesn't have your name on either one of these. So we'll have to figure that out. Or as um, I introduce myself at Educause, I'm the ass in it. Phil, one of the asses in Phil Phil Hill. Phil and Hill Associates. Associate. <laughs> yeah, that was actually good seeing that one time where, uh, Neil, there was, I forgot where it was, maybe the way it showed up in social media and it truncated the logo and it said Phil Hill and ass. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, uh, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this podcast. I'm Phil Hill. I've been uh, working in EdTech for more than two decades now. And most people know me from the blog that's gone through different names. I mean, I originally started working with Michael Feldstein at eLiterate, and then I blogged. um, Actually, I had a blog before that, but nobody read it. Um, And then I created Phil on EdTech, and then now it's called On EdTech by Phil Hill and Associates. So Love uh, sort of looking at what's happening in the ed tech industry, trying to understand what are the underlying trends and figure out what's going on. Basically trying to bring some sense out of the chaos that we often see in the market and hopefully present it in a way that's digestible by academics, by people who aren't you know, spending the time to get into the real deep level stuff. And I've had a great experience uh, knowing and working with Morgan in different capacities for, my goodness, it's coming up on 20 years now. Um, So, and it's great to, Neil is somebody who, it's one of these, oh, I've met you online from virtual, from Twitter responses and other things and reading blogs and uh, got to meet Neil in London over some uh, beers, and it's great to do this podcast. But I'll turn it over to you, Neil. Awesome. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, I'm Neil Mosley. I'm, I'm, um, I'm calling in from Cardiff in the UK. Um, and similar to Phil, kind of been working in the ed tech, online learning, um, learning design space for quite a few years now. Uh, I forget the exact number, but I worked in UK universities for a decent chunk of time um, in all of those areas. And then a few years ago, I, I made the step to to go freelance and set up my own thing. Um, still very much working in higher education. And yeah, uh, I guess I'd echo a lot of what um, Phil said in terms of trying to, um, I guess, illuminate this area, um, particularly in terms of kind of companies, but just in general, there's all kinds of things going on. Um, and I guess my hope in with this podcast is that we can provide something that's really useful and illuminating for for people out there in higher ed around what's happening, what might happen, um, and just a general understanding of of this kind of weird and wonderful area of ed tech and online learning. Yeah. By the way, in the US, we don't call it freelancing; we call it consulting, but using scare quotes. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. that's good. Or at to least know. that's what my wife does. <laughs> what does Phil do? Consulting. Uh, so. I fear we're going to have lots of translational moments yes. <laughs> here. 
so I'm Glenda Morgan. I've also been working in ed tech for about 20 odd years, um, mostly at universities and then for about eight and a half years at the international research research and advisory firm Gartner and then left Gartner and came to work for Phil Hill uh, and covering all kinds of uh, fun stuff, including learning management systems, online learning, proctoring for my sons, and a, a bunch of other things. And I, I live in, in very beautiful right now, Salt Lake City. I, I guess I should have mentioned I live in uh, Arizona in the U.S., um, where Morgan lived until I moved here. Then she promptly <laughs> up and left for Salt Lake City. It was not personal, I promise. Earlier in our pre-discussion, we were talking about domestic harmony and the need to maintain domestic harmony. And and one of the ways that I could maintain domestic harmony is by explaining things a bit better, because my spouse is always saying, I need a 101. I need I need you to explain the basic stuff. So let's not without talking about it too much, perhaps let's talk about what is an online program manager or OPM and um, what do they look like? Well, I'll, I'll start. I guess my trick, by the way, it's not harmony. It's a matter of if your spouse asks you a question and within five seconds of your answer, if you can tell they're thinking about something else and they've moved on, then you know that you didn't have a good answer. But for an online program manager, the biggest thing I try to define is it's when a nonprofit or a traditional university wants to develop or expand an online program, it's the primary partner they work with to make that happen. And I really emphasize the primary partner because schools have a number of vendors doing almost everything. For it to qualify as an OPM, or an OPX or an OPE, you know, some variation of the OPM language, it has to emphasize that public-private partnership, um, even if it's a nonprofit, for-profit partnership, where it's like, no, these, this is the main company with the know-how and helping us move online or expand online. So in a nutshell, that's how I start out. Yeah, on the subject of the kind of domestic issue, my problem is that I'm a verbal processor. So my, my wife often has to wait kind of five minutes in until she gets the succinct uh, definition of anything. But I'm going to try to hit first in. But I mean, the way I, I guess the way I think about it, um, to, to Phil's point, is public-private partnerships. And essentially, you know, these are companies who provide the financing, the capability, that universities need to develop and deliver online education. I guess in its kind of most basic form, that's what I that's what I think an OPM the OPM does. Yeah, it's. I think you hit on and 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 the both of you hit on a couple of really key things there. You know, the public private or the nonprofit for profit. The, the the primary partner part I think is keen. Um, I think even just calling it an online program manager is a bit of a help. You know, years ago, I gave a talk on OPMs at Gartner, and I, in my practice talk, I got about 20 minutes in when, when somebody said, why are we talking about OPM? Like, is that even relevant <laughs> to EdTech? Yeah. <laughs> so I think sort of breaking it down a little bit there, but I think, you know, that's a useful thing. The other sort of part of it for me is where are the boundaries of the category? You know, I know, Phil, in, in your market guide or your 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 view of the market, you've got your large companies, small companies, you include uh, employer pathway kinds of companies like like Guild in there. 
Um, but I don't see you separating out, say, boot camps. So what's in and what's out? I'd be interested to hear from both of you about, you know, which of those companies are are considered OPMs and which aren't. Well, I guess I've always started from an inside-out perspective. And the core of the market was in higher education degrees, so degree-based work, and the companies that help them do it. Now, from the U.S. perspective, you quickly get into regulatory issues, where from a regulation standpoint, marketing enrollment, you know, helping find learners and students and getting them enrolled is the core of the market. There's no escaping that fact. That's, you know, it's, I have trouble calling somebody an OPM if they're not doing marketing and enrollment management of some form. But in the U.S., you have to have a bundle of services for that to be legal if you're doing a tuition revenue share agreement. And so the other pieces, historically, it was the technology infrastructure. You know, 20 some years ago, schools didn't necessarily have an LMS or a VLE and they didn't have the analytics. So there's the core technology, although that's shifting. There's the know-how and instructional design on how to design online curriculum and online courses. So I start with that, but the core of it was higher education degrees. And then part of the reason I've done the landscape charts is I find, I think that it's expanding. It's bringing in other areas. What about non-degrees? What about enterprise customers? So there's no clean answer, but the approach I've taken is start with a higher education degree and then expand out to a moving target. So maybe not a satisfactory or simple answer, but that's the approach I've taken. Yeah, I think I think it's just getting harder and harder to categorize um, kind of companies in this space. And I've grappled with lots of different definitions around the different companies as they've evolved. Um, but the, I guess the way that I think and define um, OPMs is um, <clears throat> a little bit around the kind of particular model. So, you know, I, I typically would kind of class an OPM as having those bundles of of services that Phil talked about, you know, the marketing and recruitment, student support, the learning design, um, technical infrastructure, all of those kind of bundled services. And those companies typically operating with universities around degrees and having a longer term arrangement that's usually centered around, you know, a revenue share um, agreement. I, I sort of tend to think about defining them on the basis of that model, which, you know, we know is kind of in flux a little bit. Um, but that's that's kind of how I've approached that categorization. But increasingly, um, categorizations, I think, are getting blurred and it's, yeah, harder to know who sits where and what you call them. But that's all part of the fun of the fun of the space, I think. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I, I sort of tend to go for a fairly um, expansive definition, you know, so I would throw resellers in there. And that's a category that's sort of somewhat interesting to me, you know, so things like Emeritus or Stafford Global in, in the UK, companies that, you know, take already existing content or degrees and then resell them in a different um, in a different place. So I haven't seen those in many of the market maps or things like that, but I would definitely sort of include them uh, there as well. But perhaps 
the other part of the 101 thing that I'd be interested in, in looking at is why do institutions work with OPMs? You know, why are they, why, why do they even exist as a thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it comes down to a few different things. Like it comes down to capability around being able to deliver online. I think if you think back probably to kind of years back, uh, online education was more of a kind of a new a new way to deliver education and so there's kind of the element of capability of, of, of to be able to deliver that kind of modality well and seeking capability and expertise outside in order to do that i think allied to that there's always that degree of risk as well when you're doing something new and the financing and support that a company provides help alleviate that a little bit or help kind of deal with that. And I think the third the third thing for me really is that in a way really universities are, are reaching an audience that they're not they've not typically known for through online education. Mm-hmm. And that kind of um has impacts on how you market, how you reach people, how you design programs, all those kind of things. So I think there's something around um, support for reaching a different audience. There's something about managing risk of doing something new. And there's something about capability to to move into a a way of teaching and a way of delivering education that hasn't traditionally been, you know, the core business of what, what the kind of traditional universities do. To play off of that, I think that historical perspective is so important here because universities have changed over time. So the market, I think BISC, I'll see if Morgan agrees with this, but BISC claims to be the first OPM uh, from back in the late 1990s doing a model. But back at the time, there were just a small handful of schools, uh, certainly in the U.S., I believe in the U.K. and Europe, who were doing online education. In the U.S., they the ones that were doing it more than just a course or two tended to be organized around the Sloan Consortium. And so there was a handful of schools studying online education. The for-profit sector realized what was happening, and they started jumping in in force And they redesigned their companies around scaling online education. So the for-profit started growing very quickly. So the origin of the OPM market was, hey, how can non-for-profit schools, non-profit schools, how can they get into online education while all the for-profits are doing this themselves? Well, the answer to that came to some of the things you said, the the know-how, the financing, the things that nonprofit schools are not good at. They're not good at organizational change. They're not good at rethinking marketing and reaching students. And particularly with faculty autonomy and other issues, they, they're they sort of set and have historically been set in their ways about how you design a course. And what you do online needs to be different than what you do face-to-face. So historically, it was set up as we're a company that can help a nonprofit school do the things that those for-profit schools are doing. Let them compete. Over time, that's changed because schools are developing instructional design capabilities. A lot of universities developing their own online programs with their own know-how. And some are getting to the point of saying, I can do this myself. But historically, it came from that. 
And then there was a huge, uh, in 2011, regulatory issue in the U.S. that clarified, at least for the time being, can you do a tuition revenue share, which is the way they do the financing that you referred to, Neil. And it sort of said, as long as you do this, have a bundle of services, yes, you can do it. Then the market, I wouldn't say it exploded, but it definitely went into a new era in 2011 in the U.S. But where we are today is different than those two periods, one and two decades ago. A lot of schools, it's not a non-issue, but so many schools know how to do much more of this activity themselves. And the financial markets have changed. So that's part of the reason we started out talking about how all the categories are moving around. So historically, the definition has been, or the need has been moving around. You know, as I wrote in the blog, I think it's not quite a life support situation. I see signs, you know, in terms of contracts and things like that, people, um, some of the OPM companies advertising for fairly senior kinds of roles. So I, I do see those kinds of things. But I think there's also a big structural change that even apart from the cost of capital that you mentioned and the pressure on, on profitability and then the regulations in the US, I think there's also a bit of a structural change. I was having a conversation with someone on a campus recently who has been working with an OPM. And, and she, she made a really interesting comment, which was that increasingly it doesn't sort of make sense for them to work with an OPM for their online programs because they're getting that switching back and forth. The, the course taking uh, mo uh, mode that students are working in, the, 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 the way that students are, are, are functioning, they take a course online, they take a course on campus, they're switching back and forth. And the whole OPM business model and contract model doesn't actually make sense for them. So they're thinking of, of leaving their OPM, you know, just for that reason, they've been very happy, but, but just because of that. So I think there are also these sort of structural changes that are going on that, that point to a, a difficult future for the OPMs, even though I, I chastised you in the blog for, for that. <laughs> Which headline. I appreciated. Now, Morgan, I, I'm really looking to see if, uh, like your reaction on the BISC claims as well. I, I would concur that BISC was one of the, so it's certainly the early movers there. I mean, you sort of pop up with, you know, if you go back to them, um, you know, they, they, they've got deals going back a long, long way. Um, but, you know, the question is, when do you start doing that? Is it purely online? And um, you know, certainly there were there were places you know that have been doing distance education for a while, and 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 were they seeking help from elsewhere? As you were talking about that, and when you challenged me, I I suddenly realized that I've probably been in distance education longer than any of you, because my first real job, if you'll indulge me in a little story. <laughs> My first real job was at the University of South Africa, where I was a lecturer in development administration and politics in 1988. Or, yeah, 1988. And it was a giant distance education. They, they had over 100,000 um, students at, at the time. Nelson Mandela was one of our students, though not mine. And I used to get assignments with candle wax on them because <laughs> students had written them by candlelight. It was, it was quite something. Uh, so I, I go back a long way. Were those uh, were those video based or con 
like were there any DVDs or CDs distributed? No, it was or? all written, and there was a giant production process, which is why I sort of thought about it, you know, in, in the sense of universities have been doing it for themselves on some levels for a while. Um, you know, so there was this giant thing, which I have some other funny stories about, which I'll bore people with one day. But yeah, it was it was all written and it got sent out and then they'd send you back the assignments, you'd grade them and you'd send them back. And then once in a while, you'd go and tour the country and, and, and maybe chat with people in, in real life, although uh, uh, not insignificant. You know, this this was going on during apartheid and, and a not insignificant number of the students were both political prisoners in, in, in detention, plus also the guards. So it was an interesting you know they were all taking this opportunity to study online so uh that's where i cut my teeth but yeah but so in that regard it's the internet so in other words nonprofit schools have been doing distance education for a long time but the nature of the internet changed the environment to the point that there was a need to rethink this and i assume that would be the internet in terms of no uh essentially zero marginal cost, the ability to scale much mm-hmm. quicker than whatever your production process and your mailing process and getting physical assignments back. The internet now means it's digital. It reduces the marginal cost of each piece of component and it expands where you can go it to. So really that's what changed that created the need for the OPM. Is, would you I view would- it that way? I would challenge that because, you know, if you go back to the Open University and the University of the Air and places like that that were doing it on the radio and in television and those kinds of things um, for a long time, and, you know, they had that one-to-many kind of scalability thing. But I think the internet does change it. And I'm not, you know, I I think it it, it brought a different kind of, um, maybe it wasn't so much in the in the lecturing part, it was in the in the interaction and feedback. It really scaled that, and so it became an ability for students to um, not have to send their papers in, um, but could interact with other students in a in an easier way. I think it's interesting around. Um like audiences and reach as well around that? Because I think in the UK, you know, you mentioned Open University. We have University of London as well, which I think was probably one of the first distance learning providers. Mm -hmm. Like both of those, you know, resonate with kind of the methods that you were were talking about. Um, And and in a way, I think there's a lot of respect for an institution like the Open University in the UK. But I think also what happened or what has happened in the UK is that there's a sense in which kind of online or distance learning is for the group of people that they cater for um, who can't come here. And I think what the internet did to a certain extent is to make it less about reaching a group that are never going to come to university to kind of opening it up to people who might have you know, had the means, say, for instance, or the qualifications to come to university, but just actually want to study in a different way and fit that around their, around their life. So I think, I think that's one component of the change that the internet brought around, brought, brought about in terms of kind of online. Um, suddenly, online and distance became probably a bit more reputable and something that can be done by everyone. But how, yeah. when did that happen in the UK from a reputation? Because in the US... 
I would argue that that transformation where the reputation of online and the fact that you're really now your target learner audience overlaps and it might be the same people, that didn't really happen until 2011 or 12. And in particular with 2U, uh, their strategy to go with elite universities. So the internet might have enabled it, but it was a decade and a half before I think that really changed the mindset of the U.S. Did that, what was the time frame there? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to put a, like a number on these kind of things. But, I, I, you know, I would say there's probably a similar. And I would also even say that I still encounter, I still encounter that, that attitude that's, that says, you know, online distance education is kind of, is, is what that, that group do. So there's still, you know, even though attitudes have changed really significantly and probably like around a similar kind of time frame to what you're describing in the U.S., you still have that now. And, you know, even through COVID, people were referring to online education as if it was only really the thing done by the Open University because it was so unfamiliar to them in terms of the way you teach and the way that you deliver it, but also just, you know, in general, knowledge of what's actually happening. Sorry, we overtook your uh, your agenda, no, Morgan. No. no, 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 no. I was I was trying to sort of think about think about some of the issues that we raised. And I think there's things still fighting themselves out here in the US as well. You know, um part of what I I, I have a deeply held belief that 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 some of the things going on about an effort to intensely regulate the space comes out of a hostility towards online learning um, as much as a hostility to private enterprise operating and, and perhaps making too much profit in the space or a concern about student debt. So, you know, I think there's still some interesting battles being fought there. Did you see the Cal Matters report that came out yes, this week? Yes, that was exactly in my head. And, <laughs> okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> um there's a report uh, in California that looked at online education and the way they framed it was this this topic that Morgan's saying. It's like this, the hostility is really what framed this and, approach and to online. The two examples which they use are the UC, um, University of California system, essentially uh, putting a, the kibosh on online learning and Calbright College and and. I plan to write this in my newsletter post, but it's like saying, well, there was the Titanic and the bridge to nowhere, so we should be skeptical about transportation um, yeah. in general. <laughs> yeah, um, I, it's interesting because we, like, we definitely have, I suppose, you know, a sense of snootiness around online education mm -hmm. still, um, but there's not, there's not the direct kind of antagonism, if you could call it that, from government around it there's just the lack of it's almost like it's um, ignorance a little bit you know there's a lack of actually the way in which the regulation works the way in which student financing works you know doesn't really acknowledge mm -hmm. online students in the way that it, it it should and so we don't have the kind of it, it, it's slightly softer and quieter but there's still that kind of degree of opposition it's just manifested in a slightly different different mm -hmm. way, I think. Yeah, I, I think that online ed, and this gets to so much of what's currently happening with OPMs, it's, it's a proxy war that's being fought. There are real issues with OPMs and regulations and performance, 
but so much of the noise, it's really a proxy war of traditional education fighting at back or being afraid of online education. It, I would even argue it gets into that concept of who is a learner. It's really the higher education grappling with the fact of who should we be serving and online education so much expands that. Well, that's uncomfortable. So to me, I think the OPM quite often is a proxy war for other subjects that are coming up. But in the U.S., it's unavoidable. That proxy war, this is our Vietnam. I don't know if we want to get political on this, Morgan, but... (laughs) Yeah, I think think these are interesting issues, but... Pulling it back a little bit to the OPM thing, you know, I'd be interested in hearing, especially from Neil, but also, you know, there was this article that that a lot of folks are talking about in that that, that came out roughly a week ago, saying you know OPMs are are on life support. And interestingly, I got an email from a friend asking, you know, is this is this true? Are you hearing this even? in the case of the of the UK. So I'd be interested in your uh, reflection. I believe Phil might, might have coined the phrase life support. So he is responsible for that phrase. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a good one. And I, I, re- I read that article of interest. I mean, I, I think, I think if I can zoom out a little bit, one of the things that I really find challenging and a little bit disappointing sometimes around the discussion around OPMs is that it can become quite dualistic, it can become quite simplistic. And the reality is it's just a lot more complex and varied and nuanced than all of that. So, you know, our OPMs on life support, there are certainly OPMs experiencing challenging financial conditions here in the UK, definitely, and have difficulty around financing and increased costs and greater competition. Um, And, you know, there's been... Universities have ended partnerships. Uh, there's universities that are not wanting to kind of enter into the kind of traditional model of revenue share and all those kind of things. Um, and there's a greater kind of swathe of options around how those arrangements work. Um, but there's still a lot of appetite uh, in the UK around OPM partnerships and what that particular model that I sort of described as the way I kind of think about OPMs, there's still appetite for that. And, and OPMs are still in the in the kind of position to deliver on that and are delivering on that for some partners. So, you know, inevitably, like there are challenges around that model and, you know, there are changes af- afoot um, and there are companies uh, who are performing and doing better than others. And there's a general sense, I think, in the industry that things have to evolve. But I don't think it's as simple as saying that old model is done with now and it's on to the new model. You know, there's unique financial headwinds and geopolitical and global headwinds that also affect, you know, just companies and tech companies in general. So there there probably are some on life support or in different uh, levels of health. But I don't <laughs> think that means that, um, you know, we're, um, we're calling time on them and the traditional model just yet. Well, is the guilty party here. Um, and it's funny, when you do an interview in the media, more common uh, 
more often than not, part of what you deal with is you have a new reporter and I might spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes on a call with somebody and a lot of it's background information, helping bringing them up to speed. And then we also talk about the story at hand. And so I spend 45 minutes and then an article comes out and I get like a one phrase quote and it's not even like one of the core issues I was trying to make. So typically with interviews, that's my frustration, uh, but it's part of the game. And I, I don't mind trying to help bring people up to speed. This one was a little bit different because it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I said that in the spur of the moment. That became the headline. And then that was the framing of the whole story. <laughs> and so I I admit to a little bit of, oh, geez, I wish I had thought a little bit more about it. If I had to restate it, I do. I agree. Certain companies are on life support. I mean, let's be honest. To you, edX, their market capitalization, separate from their debt, is $180 million, roughly. I mean, this is a company that at one point, it was worth $6 billion US. That's the, the enormity of the change. Uh, Pearson used to be the largest provider. They sold it. It's boundless. They lost their top three customers. They laid off a huge portion of their staff. So there are companies absolutely on life support, and there's questions about you know uh, what's going to happen to individual companies. I think a better description would probably be that we're at an inflection point right now, and that there's it's just like in 2011 with the bundled services exception that really was an inflection point that changed the trajectory of OPMs and the core business model. I push back when people argued that fee-for-service was getting rid of revenue share. I argued the same thing you said, Neil. No, it's just more options, more complexity. But today, if you combine the macroeconomics of inflation and therefore the cost of money and therefore what investors are looking for out of companies, and you add in the competition, how many schools are competing in their programs, and you add in regulations... Altogether, it's like, I don't think the market in two years from now is going to look very much at all like the 2019 market. So it doesn't mean there's not a need, but I think there's a pretty significant inflection point that we're going through right now. Yeah. And if I can just jump in on that, I almost think as well, um, maybe tying up some of the historical stuff is that I think one of the big questions now is, you know, what, what do we do once everybody's online? You know, we talked about kind of the economics of OPMs, but there's also that kind of, you know, if we were saying in the past uh, online was more niche, less well-respected, and now more are online, there's also kind of just a general, the general sense in which that market is, you know, very, very different, irrespective of the companies that are operating within it. So Morgan, what was your initial reaction seeing that article and the framing of it? Yeah, I, I thought that was a bit of a, you know, an, an overgeneralization and an extreme point, you know, like certainly, as you said, some companies are having a rough time. And generally, the space in the US is a little fraught. But it's, you know, I remember reading, Neil had a had a good blog post from March or so about, you know, the, the, there's a steady, a steady flow of, of deals. But even right now, you know, just looking in my inbox, you know, all campuses signed a number of different schools within the last few months, Cal Lutheran, Missouri, St. Louis, Indiana, Wesleyan, Tulane, Southern Methodist, and, you know, expanded 
a few others, you know, academic partnerships assigned St. Cloud State, some new, a new thing. BISC, who we mentioned before, signed another uh, partner in Eastern Connecticut State. So you're getting all this new business. What we don't get a sense of and what nobody's mentioned and is interesting to me is, is who's leaving on the other side, you know, in the sense of either breaking contracts or, you know, something that has emerged sort of or that I knew on some level but has hit me over the head a little bit was the extent to which a lot of these deals are not actually profitable for some of these companies and and some of them are leaving them and and to quite a shocking level in you know in some cases so you know i think that's that's a side of the debate that that needs some needs some thought about and you know for me it's like how can these OPMs actually have these deals on the books for this length of time and they're not being profitable what's going on are they not picking well what's going on there I would argue it's free money. This is the same environment that's caused other run-ups well outside of education, that uh, while you have essentially zero interest rates, the market rewarded the story of growth. You never had to hit profitability. It was always how big could you become, and there was no pressure to go. This is why I would say it was a free market Um, economy that was driving that. So every earnings call from to you was always talking about we'll be profitable in the future, in the future, and we're growing this much. Once you get to the point of saying, well, but the cost of money is changing things. And so therefore, will you be profitable in two years the way you promise or are dangling in front of us? That the simple math makes that change. And then investors changed on a dime. I mean, within a 12-month period, they suddenly change from a growth mindset to you have to be profitable and it has to be profitable this year or next. So the entire investment community around technology changed their mindset. And I would say the biggest driver was inflation. So there are other factors, but to me, that's the core reason that OPMs could keep unprofitable programs on their books for so long. It was a growth story. Yeah, and I think to that point as well, like, I guess we talk about OPM university partnerships um, as if they're all equal. You know, they, they they are unique partnerships with their own flavor for each institution. And to your point, Morgan, around when those partnerships come to an end, like there's a whole different range of different reasons why those things happen. And they're not usually, you know, they're usually things that you can glean, but they're not usually publicly available. And, you know, they can range from the OPM not delivering to the university not really managing the partnership and leveraging it for their benefit. There's a whole de- range of different reasons. And, completely accept Phil's point that's like a whole different kind of economic environment that kind of enabled a lot of this stuff but also you know under the hood of the partnership there's all kinds of things going on you know I think for universities you know they they need to manage that partnership and get the most out of those partnership as much as the company often the focus is on the company as the either the villain or however you might put it but you know actually like when you when you know and see the insides of those relationships, you know some of the reasons why they're not successful are um, a, li- a little bit more nuanced than you know 
a private company coming into education and not delivering. I have a question for Neil. Um, you know, as some of when I think about what the future of an OPM might look like, or what a future of companies that support universities going online might look like. One of the things I think about are specialized marketing agencies, um, you know, and, and increasingly even schools that haven't worked with OPMs are working with multiple of these. So recently I did a bit of a deep dive into one institution that's been doing online since the early 2000s, pretty successful program. They don't use an OPM, but they work with five or six external marketing agencies just for the online programs. And I see less of that in the UK, but it's probably, I'm not looking in the right places or um, or things. Do you see that as well? Is that a big industry there? Yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> it's hard to know definitively. Like there's definitely, I'm not sure how many are working with that, that number of, of agencies, but I, I think, think that's an outlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's certainly happening. And I, I, you know, I think, as I said earlier, you know, universities in the UK are just looking for all different means of diversifying income at the moment, because inflation means that their income from their, from student fees have dropped, has dropped a third. And that, you know, the way that, mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned about the kind of politics of US regulation, where we are at in our kind of political cycle is that, you know, we're a year or maybe less out from a general election and there's going to be no appetite from the residing party or the prospective party to do anything around university finances so you know I think I think what I see more manifested is is a moves into online education and moves into transnational education those are the kind of things around basically international audiences but I, I think that is an interesting element of potential evolution where it becomes about these kind of set of unbundled services. I think in order to be able to, I, I suspect in order to be able to manage all of those kind of marketing agencies that you're talking about, you have to have a certain degree of capability and expertise on the university side to do that. And I think that's sometimes what gets lost in this kind of debate and discussion that, you know, partnerships are successful because of both parties being, um, you know, a, a kind of driving a successful partnership. So, you know, I think there's also the element of of universities being able to essentially kind of manage those partnerships and know what they need and know how they kind of go about achieving and knowing where they need help. And I think um, I, I just wanted to pick up on something that Phil was saying around the kind of enrollment side of things as well. I think I also wonder a little bit um, how much the culture around return on investment on the university side played into what you were talking about. Because certainly I, I found on occasions that universities aren't necessarily so strong on cost versus income of programs and managing that and being aware of it. And some A wonderfully British understatement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, that this is what I'm here to do, I think. You know, provide <laughs> provide the understatement. Um but, but you bloody know, awful. That's what yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> but but um you know you OPMs have kind of often clear targets and uh, clear baselines around numbers of students or programs. And in a way that universities often don't or they may be very happy with a number that an OPM would be you know, squirming at, at the kind of how how small the numbers are. So I, I suppose I'm always keen to have a look at both sides of these things as well. And I think that's an element of the the pr program performance. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's an element of being able to manage a more of an unbundled kind of approach, really. I think that requires a different type of maturity. It's, in a way, it's a lot easier to just outsource everything, right? Um, and, and kind of have a very light management of that partnership. But when you kind of deliberately going for specific services, you've kind of, I don't know, you've made a bit more of a judgment of what you feel you need and the capability and what you want to try to achieve. So in a way, you're saying the OPM was the general contractor, and now you're going to a situation where you maybe don't have a general contractor. You've got to handle the the electrician and the plumber and the carpenter and all these kinds of different tradespeople by yourself, and it's a whole different skill set. Yeah, and um, I've certainly heard of instances where universities have kind of been wanting to do that, but haven't necessarily managed it in the kind of interests of the companies um, because, you know, maybe tenders haven't been you know profitable enough for companies to um to kind of you know go for them really so it's yeah it's all well and good kind of talking about that but there's there's factors on the university side that influence the success of of that side of things um but i I do think it comes down to maturity and i've always Mm -hmm. been of the impression that perhaps in the US, you're a little bit further ahead in general terms than where 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 we are. Um, I'm not just I'm not just saying that because it's two of you and one of me. Just just on the on the on on the issue of skills in managing it, I think that's a key issue. And actually, um, in the, in the past couple of weeks, one of the things I've read is Maria Spies from Holland IQ's uh, dissertation, PhD dissertation, uh, where she talks about some of the skills involved in managing. Uh, uh, an, an OPM, and it's worth a read, or, it, or or worth getting in touch with me to give you the the Cliff's Notes, Notes version of it. Well, I was just going to put that came back to me. You just described what I mean by a proxy war. Is I do think there's an inflection point. It's driven by competition. It's driven by inflation. It's driven by uh, and some pretty fundamental changes with the companies and regulation. But what you read about is the proxy war. And now you have a weak industry with some weak players and people are leveraging that to make their other point. This is what happens when you have evil for-profit companies coming into education. So, yeah, there's a lot of noise and a lot of using the the real situation to make some other point that's going on right now. Yeah, and I think I think that's sort of a component, isn't it, of the whole OPM discussion that, you know, generally like there's there's a lot of kind of divisiveness, there's a lot of polarization in terms of people's views, and that colours the debate and the discussion. I think I would think I would say usually in unhelpful ways. Um with with I say that respecting people's right to, you know, take different positions on it. But um, it does sometimes cloud the reality, I think. But I think this has been a really great level set in terms of what are OPMs, what's going on right now, how do they fit into that broader trajectory of the growth of online learning? That was a nice um, little side route that I think we went down there. But we should wrap up and, and, and take it up in our next discussion. There, I had to do some outro music. Please. Send money to our sponsors. 